Yeah, because the thing the, the thing about this Facebook Live stuff for me, at least this experiment, is that I kind of want it to be the kind of minimum viable work, right? Like right. if I had to bring a whole crew with me, there's no, sort exactly. of no point. Um, and uh, it feels like several macros could do a good job here for you. Yeah. But, 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 you know, it's kind of fun because it's not easy yet. So there's, just, so there's just some... a small aside on the pre-chat. Yeah. Do you know who took that picture? I did. Yes, you did. Yeah. I just wanted to point out for people <laughs> that you. you're living on the edge of many things, including a major contributor to Wikimedia Commons. Thank you. All right. So we're going to get started. That so, picture has great memories for me because it reminds me of you. Thank you. And, I mean, everybody knows you, but some people, especially with this time zone, we're not getting many West Coast people. It's not the perfect Facebook Live time because what, no one's awake, and well, Dave Marin's awake, but not Morning, many Dave. people. Not many people are awake in California. Some people are just going to bed in Tokyo. So, well, actually, do do we do I even remember what, how I met you? Do you remember how we met? Uh, we met at the uh, Aspen Festival That's that right. uh, Fortune Magazine mm -hmm. ran. It was you, me, Jacqueline Novogratz. And the, I'm gonna the, the two Google guys, yeah, and Justice Breyer from the Supreme Court, sitting around the round why table. Why do you remember so much better? Than why me? do I remember? Because that was the day I became the blogger I am today. Because you turned me on to it, and because how often do you have lunch with a Supreme Court justice? And because Jacqueline Novogratz is an extraordinary human being, so there it was, all in one circle. Wow. Yeah. So, can you tell people what you do? I actually would like to hear what you say you do. Uh, it's evolved. I mostly call myself a teacher now. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that we've been living in a revolution for 20 or 25 years. Yeah. And being a player in that revolution in one way or another has taught me a lot. But what I find the most satisfying is trying to teach that to other people. Uh, so I've started companies. I've written 18 bestsellers. I blog every day. Uh, I've run various kinds of classes in schools. I've started something called the Alt-MBA, which is a workshop that works around the world for about 120 people at a time. Um, but mostly I make ruckuses and try to do things that are still interesting. And so you, 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 you didn't use the word marketing? No, definitely not. Okay. And is that marketing that you don't use the word marketing? Well, it's interesting. Because that's what people say about <laughs> you. <laughs> you know... During the 1960s and 70s, the 800 number took off, mm -hmm. and it completely transformed the way almost everything was bought and sold. But no one talked about telephone marketing. Mm -hmm. It was just the telephone. It was mm -hmm. a medium. For me, marketing is the way we spread our ideas. Marketing is how we persuade people to see the world differently. I don't think it needs a special category and name, because we're all doing it all the time. There's mm -hmm. just bad marketing, which is uninformed or selfish or short-term, mm -hmm. and good marketing, which is mindful and intentional. Mm -hmm. But to say, I'm a marketer, well, you're a marketer too. Mm -hmm. And so are some of the crazy people who work at the Media Lab, because part of their day is coming up with a cool thing, but most of their day is persuading other people that mm -hmm. the thing is worth it. Mm -hmm. I remember there was a, a, a billboard um, when the Clintons first took office, and it was, I think it was the two of them, with Hillary and Bill, in front of the White House. And it wasn't some advertising magazine. And the bottom says, it's all about marketing. <laughs> so that's cheesy for you. Yeah, I, It's true, though, it, right? Well, here's the deal. 
we like to dismiss the things that frighten us. Mm -hmm. We want to dismiss the things that put us into a spot where we might become uncomfortable. So it's super easy to dismiss salespeople and super easy mm -hmm. to dismiss marketing because that's the other thing. You know, so the Times, uh, which you are sort of affiliated with, hates people who do marketing for a living. They don't talk about their books. They don't talk about their work because they'd much rather talk about literary fiction, which is great. Literary fiction is great. But the reason it's so easy to dismiss it is because of the Elmer Gantries of the world, because of the people who are shysters, who are selling us the thing we will regret later. Mm -hmm. But the people who are doing great work, Gandhi was a fabulous marketer, mm -hmm. right? Because without using weapons, mm -hmm. he completely changed a country with a billion people in it. Well, that was a marketing effort more than anything yeah. else. You know the other word that's like that is networker. Yeah. Because the image of a networker is somebody who has a single-minded focus to just collect the business cards of the most famous people in the room at every party. When in fact, building a diverse network of really interesting people, for me, is really what I do, but I would never call myself a networker. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I showed up in the 90s at just the right moment when old marketing, which was equal to advertising, which mm -hmm. was equal to Mad Men, was dying. Mm -hmm. It's now officially dead. Really? And so, so is that, is that a, can well, I? Well, you can quote oh, me. Oh, sure. <laughs> can you name one brand? in the last 10 years that was built on advertising. Just one. In the last 10 years? Yeah. Uber, Amazon, YouTube, go down the list. I can't think of one. That's mm. not how they got there. Red Bull. No. Red Bull was built on bars and detail forces of people uh, working from one part of a cultural cycle to another. And only after they were a multi-billion dollar company did they then say, let's buy all these ads. Mm -hmm. Starbucks, same way, right? But in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, every brand mm -hmm. was built on advertising. Mm -hmm. So once we saw it going away, there was a thirst for, well, what takes its place? And mm -hmm. I happened to be in the right place to just to not only narrate that, but do it as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I could have had the same impact if I started today. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. revolutions create these openings where they destroy the perfect and they enable the impossible. Mm -hmm. Advertising was perfect. Mm -hmm. Because you knew if you spent a hundred bucks, you were going to get two hundred bucks of value mm -hmm. back, right? And it's impossible mm -hmm. to imagine that one human being could put up a video mm -hmm. and have it be seen by a billion people for mm -hmm. free. So, there, there's, so I just finished a book where my co-author Jeff Howe is a is a journalist, and and one of the things that he did is he did a deep dive into the industrial revolution. And I'm going to get this wrong, but but there's a metaphor here, which is, um, you know, so you have these moments before the Industrial Revolution where you had these cottage industries and you had um, masters, journeymen, apprentices, which we like to imagine Media Lab is kind of like, and, and you were sort of in service of this and, and your whole point was to master the art of shoemaking. Sure. Right? And, and, then, and then there were these, these, um, these uh, trading um, people who, who, had, who were kind of starting to invent capitalism. Right. right? And then, um, and I think that the, the the, the, the people who used to run these artisanal things, um, well, I guess the short version of the story is eventually they figure out how to give credit to people to create these factories. But the people who created the factories, which is interesting, were the rogue artisans, yeah, not like some outsiders, right? Like Josiah Wedgwood. Right, yeah. exactly. So, so, so what's, what's, what's interesting is as we see the collapse of sort of mainstream media-driven communications and advertising and PR and all that, 
do you think the people who are kind of figuring it out are people who come from having known how it used to work? Or do you think these are... Because the image of like disruptors right, right. now are that they're, they only can do it because they don't know any better, right? And you're kind of the other side, right? Like you were just there seeing how it used to work, able to see where the holes were, like you said, and ma navigate your way through. Or is it, is it, I mean, I'm just curious kind of where the... I love these conversations. So Josiah Wedgwood's dad made pottery mm -hmm. the old-fashioned way. Josiah knew how to make pottery. And what he did was incrementally over the course of years invent uh, a version of the assembly line, the retail showroom, paying people on commission, health insurance, uh, the factory with windows, the whole thing. He made so much money that when he died, he was one of the richest people in the world. His grandson used that money, Charles Darwin, mm -hmm. to change the world again. I love mm -hmm. that they were listening. Um, but Jimmy Wales didn't work at Encyclopedia Britannica. And the Google guys didn't work at Random House. Mm -hmm. And Mark Zuckerberg didn't work anywhere. So you don't see that here. And I think the reason is the lever of software is so much more spectacular. Mm -hmm. That Josiah Wedgwood, none of the innovations were 100x over his dad. Mm -hmm. They were all 5x over his dad. They were interesting, interesting. shortcuts that mm -hmm. he kept compounding. Yep. Today, the, the lever is so much bigger. So, so that's what Silicon Valley would like you to believe, right? And I think that there is some percentage of the GDP of industries for which mm -hmm. that works. And my hypothesis, which is just an idea, I'm not sure it's true, but I, I am hoping it's true, is that the 80, rest of the 85%, there isn't that much leverage. And right. that, in fact, I Silicon agree. Valley is ignoring it. And it's kind No, they of, give you a tool now. They give you... Well, but, 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 but I think, like, like so, so my little thing right now with artificial intelligence, right, mm -hmm. is I feel, and many people, I mean, the smartest people in the field also kind of are on my side, but, but roughly overgeneralizing and, and, and annoying the people who this is going to annoy anyway, I, I, I feel like a lot of the people in computer science and people who build systems with this theory that with enough computer power, you can ignore the rest of the world, sort of, right? You know, like like Uber just, I mean, you just kind of go in and you just do it. And then it's going to be Uber so... Uber didn't work because of computer but, power. But, but yeah, but, but but if you just, you can kind of ignore rules, laws, culture to some extent. If, because if commercial it's, power. Yeah, but if it's convenient enough and important enough, yes. the, the bad guys can't shut you down. It's kind of, it's sort of the, the mythology of Silicon Valley is that, that you don't really have to talk to the politicians. You don't really have to talk to the philosophers and the sociologists and the economists because this is a whole new thing that's that it is and, and in many cases it's true so for instance with self-driving cars right so i think that the people who are building them um and i, I won't just say something like that but there's a category of people who are building them that just think that the computer is just going to get so smart that it'll just figure it out and there's another group of people who say no actually um there's a big computer science part and we're starting to figure that out but there's a whole other part which is how do you codify the values of society, right. how you convince society that uh, AI judge can and should be figuring out bail and parole, and will a human take the judgment of a machine, and, you know, sure. and, 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 and what's, what's I think is kind of interesting is that I think there's a bunch of people who wish that and maybe believe that algorithms will eventually be smarter than humans anyway, and so dealing with all of this legacy is kind of not really worth the time. 
And there's another set of people who say, okay, now that we've got this core engine that's so good, this tool, we should start creating connective tissue. That's, by the way, where I am. And then yeah. there's other people who feel like, no, let's, we, we don't even need to understand the tool. We can legislate it and philosophize about it. Uh, you can tell where my bias well, is. Yeah, right? those but, people we can leave out of the conversation. Here, here, here's the thing. Uber and Google achieved what they achieved because they were triumphs of storytelling, mm -hmm. not because they were triumphs of technology. Mm -hmm. And the same thing's true with Facebook. So that gave them market power and commercial power because the story was so resonant and the value created so fast that you could stumble through society's mores for a while and then it compounded really quickly. But mm -hmm. let's not fool ourselves. This is not a technology thing at all. Mm -hmm. It's did you package the story intentionally or not in a way that resonated with people that made them go forward. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that fascinates me the most is now the Valley, etc., is giving us all these tools where people like me who are incompetent programmers have a lever, right? So here we are using a TV network that didn't exist two years ago. Mm -hmm. Why isn't everyone using that lever? Why, you know, why was it Josiah Wedgwood's job to invent everything he invented? There, was ten, there were 10,000 potters who could have done it, mm -hmm. right? Why is it that 5,000 people are disenchanted in the ad business, but only a couple of them go on to invent things like commercial email, mm -hmm. right? The tools are easier than ever, mm -hmm. but the number of people who are willing to use them yeah isn't going up commensurately. So, so here, this is a Nicholas Negroponteism, which I, which I love, because when we were talking about the Media Lab, he said, the really important thing is that the people who have the creativity about the medium also have the ability to make the tools. Yep. So in photography and other things where you have the tool makers also making the art, it continues to grow. Right. And the minute, like with newspapers or television, when the tool makers become electronics companies and the people who use the tools don't care about the technology, it really slows down. And I think one of the things which you're pointing out is that I think with the Industrial Revolution and the division of labor, one of the things that happened is you didn't make your own tools. That was just beneath you. So the creative people were creative and they were given the tools. And then you know, I'm on the board of Sony. So we sit around, a lot of people try to figure out what do television people want, right? And then we make studios and we make tools. Right. What's neat and what was great about blogging, if you remember, is when we started, and Ben and Mina, who created Movable Type, they all were people who, after the first internet bubble, were you know, overqualified, lost their jobs, knew how to wrote, write code, and were smart. So they started writing platforms to express their own ideas. And you had these multi-million dollar publishing CMSs, content management systems that right. IBM and other people sold, but they built these things with this kind of idea of what content producers would use. The bloggers wrote their own tools. And that's well, why it was actually the CMS people failed because they compromised. Mm -hmm. And the, the movable type people cared too much to compromise. It wasn't that they didn't know. Yeah. It was that they didn't care. So this is an interesting reversal. There are a lot of reasons Kodak failed. But one of the reasons Kodak failed was Kodak had a cadre of well-paid well-respected photographers on staff mm -hmm. who loved silver mm -hmm. gelatin, who loved that. And none of them spoke up for Instagram or Snapchat or photo sharing because it wasn't what they wanted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in fact, sometimes being a craftsman and a tool maker gets in the way when you're trying to be in a revolution. That's interesting. So, so there's probably a innovation phase 
Right. And there's probably the revolution phase, right? Exactly. And then, and then the, the, the interesting thing is, and getting back to the Ubers and things like that is, like, how does that revolution occur, right? Because you have to have some interest in the target industry, right? Yes. I mean, you're, not everyone, but, but mostly, right? Like, because you're not, because you, you got you to gotta kind of get into it before. And, and, and I guess, is, is, the, is, is the theory then that it could be from either side? Or do you think that, but I guess with computer science, computer science is so hard and takes so long to master that most of those people are probably computer scientists coming in from the other side. Well, you know, I think with the exception of the Google guys and, and maybe uh, Dave Philo at Yahoo, most of the winners in terms of the true revolutionaries mm -hmm. aren't brilliant computer scientists. Because computer science, like many things in academics, is public. It's out there. Mm -hmm. You can see mm -hmm. the state of the mm -hmm. art. So when I helped invent commercial email, I didn't know how, I don't even know what the initials stand for. I just knew that it was happening. I could mm -hmm. see, that, oh, if I did this and I added that, we could do this, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? And that is, it's so easy to say, I'm not qualified mm -hmm. because I'm not a computer science major. But what I'm saying is, if you're a human, mm -hmm. you're a pattern matcher. Mm -hmm. That's what humans do. So find some patterns that matter to you and start creating a revolution in that circle, regardless of whether you know computer science, because what you really need is the willingness to accept responsibility. And that's what's so To scary. explain, unpack that. Okay, so what was Steve Jobs good at, right? He wasn't a brilliant designer. He didn't know technology that well. What he was good at it was he had grit. He had the grit to say, no, we're not gonna do this. We're gonna cancel these things. Yes, we're gonna do that. Mm -hmm. That grit is pretty scarce. And so when you look at a company like Apple now that's trying to maximize uh, shareholder value and price, it's really hard for them to do something, to quote the horrible phrase mm -hmm. used by Schiller, that has courage. Mm -hmm. Because real courage is saying, yeah, this actually is better and I can put my name behind it. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you why it's better. Mm -hmm. I have the grit to say yes or the grit mm -hmm. to say no. Patterns can be seen by lots of people, but we refuse to see them because um, we're afraid. We're mm -hmm. afraid that if we see them, we have to do something, and if we do something, it'll be our responsibility. So you don't like courage, the word? Well, no, I thought claiming that you got rid of the headphone jack in the new Apple phone because uh, oh, you had courage right, right, right. was just a complete cop-out at seven different levels. Yeah, it, it, it is, so, so another just Nicholas incident, which I thought was interesting was, um, we were interviewing, when we interview a potential faculty, they come and give a talk. And I was sitting next to Nicholas, and he was saying, oh my God, why would they do that? Oh, wow, that's, that's almost disgusting. We need this person. We don't have one of those. You know? and, and I think what's interesting about the lab is we, I call it disobedience robust. Yes. But we're always looking for orthogonality. Right. Because we feel like we can somehow metabolize that and turn it into energy. You know? exactly. And I think... That's actually pretty important because most companies, when they start getting under pressure, um, want to become robust by becoming sort of um, monolithic yes. and, and risk adverse, right? And and I think it, it's it and that's it, it's not the same as Steve Jobs, but it's similar. It's sort of this this interest in in and I hate the word disrupt. So I don't want to use it, but but it's sort of like to be able to be always questioning yourself. So here's the word that I think you could use instead, and. For those of you who are joining us who don't know Joey, I'm lucky enough to be on his advisory board at the Media Lab. The Media Lab 
is almost entirely about one word, which is tension. Hmm. And what I think you do for a living is you curate a day-long dinner party every day filled with tension. You bring people into the room who might, who all have the same intent, but who have different ways to get there and are willing to own that process. And it's from that tension that magic happens. And so many organizations would like to be like the Media Lab, except they also want lots of meetings and lots of compromise. You can't have both. That you've intentionally curated this thing. And Nicholas was so great at it because Nicholas can get up on stage and 80% of what he says is nonsense until 20 years later when it's true, mm -hmm. right? But you got to be willing to say the nonsense today. So you, we were together a few months ago and Nicholas, someone said, what's going to be next? He said, what's going to be next? 20 years from now is a pill. You'll take it. You'll be able to speak French, mm -hmm. right? And like that, you just, you can't even know how to put your arms around that until it happens. But for him to stand up and say it and articulate why DNA is a great storage mechanism, blah, 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 yeah. he just opened seven doors for people. That's what we need more of because we live in revolutionary times. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, 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 and by the way, that, that's, I think, the most exciting thing right now for us at the Media Lab is that I think traditionally the Media Lab, when it got started, was about media. I mean, it was about touch screens and interfaces and Mac, Macintosh and the Aspen Project. Now we're doing synthetic biology and implantable circuits and, and the, the, the hard sciences that we're bringing in. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, it turns out that this weird tension, disobedience, robustness, and anti-disciplinary method works on science too. And that, that's, that, that's, that's kind of a neat thing. Um, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> so, 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 so I wanted to shift gears for a sec because I don't know how many people who are watching write books, but I'm have gone through the process of the last over the last four years. I warned you trying to write a book and and you know more about you you it, I mean so I mean you, you know so much about books that you don't want to really do the thing again. But can you like describe like you did a little bit with the marketing thing, like what was it? What where is it and what 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 do you what should it be? Okay, so uh Jeff Jarvis call, talks about the Gutenberg parentheses, which is from whatever, 1500 to a few years ago. There was this 400 and so year period when a book was this very special thing. Mm -hmm. Because not only was it a permanent object that was available to the masses, but it came through a certain channel, was created a certain way with certain curators. There was just the right amount of scarcity. Not everyone could write a book, but enough people could write a book that bad ones would get written and good ones would get written. It was perfect, right? And as a container, a time-tested container for media, it has never been surpassed. Mm -hmm. What happened was a whole bunch of things at once. Uh, the first death of the bookstore, the second death of the bookstore, the invention of the ebook, but most important, the idea that we are now consuming a different sort of media and we don't actually respect books like we used to. It used to be that you joined the Book of the Month Club, Cleveland Amory, mm -hmm. uh, because if he picked a book, you needed to read it. Mm -hmm. And there were millions and millions of people who read the same book at the same time. Now, if a friend hands you a piece of literary fiction, it's actually bad news because you're going to have to stop checking your email to read it long enough to not offend your friend. Right, right. So there's all this ferment around the end. And then we've got Chris Anderson's Long Tail, which says, if you give people a choice, they'll take a choice. So we're, we've gone from 50,000 books published a year mm -hmm. to more than a million. 
because anyone who wants to write a book can write a book now and instantly put it into the world. Scarcity is gone. Curation is gone. So value is threatened. So, so curation, how is it gone? Because if it's on the Kindle, who decided it was worth putting okay. on the so, Kindle? So, so before the curators were the publishers. Yeah, because they were taking a financial risk to cut mm -hmm. down trees, mm -hmm. to take up shelf space. They only got a certain number of shots a day, mm -hmm. and they didn't want to waste that shot. And so they took it on this book, not that book. Mm -hmm. So there's still vestiges of it. You deserve every penny of the advance you got for your book because it's a smart bet. Mm -hmm. But on the Kindle, it will be right next to a book that someone wrote by copying 20 Wikipedia articles and pasting them together. Right, right. And since they're right next to each other, they're very hard to distinguish. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the future of books is they remain this totem that has cultural currency, that when you see it on the shelf, it stands for something. Mm -hmm. That the right book on the Kindle that holds one's attention just got to you instantly. That's really powerful. But, and we know this, as soon as someone starts reading a book on the Kindle, they're one click away from checking their email. Mm -hmm. They're one click away from going on to the next thing. So this uninterrupted attention mm -hmm. that the book used to promise is gone. But do you think... So, so two questions. So one is, so this tree-killing, publisher-driven bookstore relationship that we call curating in the right. past, was that good curating and do you can you imagine that somehow we pull the tools together that we have on the internet now and somehow create better curating or is it is it better it's just not in books well there's there's right now the curating is the curating of the crowd that you hear about it from enough people you go watch the video mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so size uh video has been seen three billion times so it, who was it curated by it was curated by the crowd Mm -hmm. The problem is the crowd doesn't really have good taste. And the crowd often points to the momentary and the scurrilous and the trolley, right? Mm -hmm. We want, if we want to elevate our culture, we want a different kind of curation. So what I did with the Domino Project, a book experiment I did four years ago, was I published uh, 10 books with Amazon as my partner. Mm -hmm. Every one of them became a bestseller. And the reason is not because Amazon promoted them because they didn't at all. Mm -hmm. It's because I built a permission base of people who wanted to hear what the next one was. I told them what it was and they all bought it the same day. Mm -hmm. So I had the position of curator. I got to pick the next bestseller. That is going to happen continually mm -hmm. in very tiny segments because you're trusted, I'm trusted, someone's trusted on medieval you know, weaponry, whatever it is. Those people mm -hmm. will be able to curate the next thing people read. The problem is when commerce shows up, which book publishers insulated themselves from for so long, mm -hmm. there's pressure to curate the thing that will make you money today. Mm -hmm. So you end up with the race to the bottom. So, 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 so just to back up for a second. So, you, you, so because, and I, I'm noticing this working with my publisher, I mean, they don't fight that much. And they're like a, a club of, right. of um, well-educated uh, gentle folk. Yes, exactly. Um, and so, I love that. So, 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 so you're saying, and how did, so, so, so there's this kind of royal club right. that curated the thoughts of the day. Right. Like the editorial board of the New York Times or some, some, some like specially selected elite. And now that's being replaced by something that is more like an evolutionary fitness function. Right. Because the, the currency in the old days was pride and status. I see. I see. So if you brought out you know, to kill a mockingbird, it wasn't because people weren't happy because you were going to sell two million books a year. It was because 
you discovered and nurtured Harper Lee. That's what you got points for, right. not selling a lot of books. So, so, one in, so, 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 so this is, there's a, I'm going to jump over to another parallel, maybe come back, but, but it is interesting because the extent to which it's about money seems to be one of the corrupting factors because yes. it oversimplifies things and makes exactly. things short term, right? And in Japan, weirdly, this is somewhat of a myth, but it's somewhat true, which is in the traditional Japanese hierarchy, the business people were kind of at the lowest part of the totem pole and the cultural people were on right. top, right? And and it's interesting, when you look at the fan fiction, fan subbing anime culture, um, before we had internet, they used to have to shuttle videotapes around. So there was a business in pirating anime. So the publishers didn't like them, and there were all these kind of like sketchy bad guys around the conventions. But once we had the internet, no one could make money. You didn't need to make money. The distribution became free. Right. So the only people who did it were the fans. Right. And then suddenly the publishers were like, oh, we like these kids. We're going to leak high-quality video. Exactly. And then Vicky, one of the companies that I backed, you know, they, they said, oh, well, let's do Creative Commons subtitles and let the publishers use them. And the relationship between the fans exactly. and the publishers became really good because we took money out of the equation, right? So I love this the notion of amateur curation and the new kind of hero. So Amanda Palmer is an internet hero. Cory Doctorow is an internet hero. Mark Frauenfelder at Boing Boing. None of them are doing it for the money, right? Mm -hmm. Their status, their cred is super high. Mm -hmm. The problem is we keep having shorter and shorter cycles where they are dwarfed by people who mm -hmm. are making money racing to the bottom. And those people get more and more share of voice. The bookstore eliminated that problem mm -hmm. because the bookstore gave plenty of room in the only place ideas were shelved yeah. to the classy people, right? The internet doesn't work that way. What happens on the internet is a search engine that shall not be named yeah. easily promotes the crass commercial stuff. It's about bidding. Yeah, yeah. And, and so the, the, the interesting fan stuff keeps falling down. So, so now, uh, big picture stuff. So Because so, this is, I think, really important, which is... So whether you believe this or not, a lot of the AI people believe that we will have so much abundance, you know, Peter Diamandis and others, that we won't have to work anymore. Okay, now let's just assume that maybe something like that happens, although it may not, um, and that universal basic income happens. So we all have money. Um, doing it for the money is not going to be the problem anymore. And, and when I go to Dubai and Bahrain and these Gulf countries where they have oil money, they have lots of kids who are bored and unhappy. That's right. Because they have no purpose, they don't know what to do, and one of the things that we've been talking about with religious leaders really is um, the fact that work provides us with the purpose and the structure and the social signaling. And back in the day, the, you know, the people who were probably the publishers, they were the rich people who didn't have to care about money. And then you had the Athenians who kind of talked about civics as a reason and the philosophy and stuff like that. And, and what's Weird and interesting is that the American dream, and this is globally true, is that everybody measures everything by money. Like, I, I've actually heard people say, how can he be smart? He's not rich. You know, that, that notion, right? And, 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 and so, so there's this interesting thing coming up, whether we go to universal basic income or not, the, 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 the measuring of things by money, this race to the bottom, and then if we somehow figure out a way how are we going to, and, and, and then the last piece I'll say before I hand it back to you is, is so I, I wrote this post about the future of work and artificial intelligence. And one of the things that um, um, Jonathan Zittrain came back and said, well, but you're not 
being clear about extrinsic motivation and intrinsic motivation, which is the other thing. So I teach this awareness class with Tenzin, who's a Buddhist monk, right. and we talk about intrinsic motivation, right? So, so the other part is, whereas like Reed Hoffman will say, extrinsic social signals and status is really important, and, and, and you were talking about the status for publishing. So, so there's also that, right, which is, you know, should you care what other people think? And anyway, but I'd love to get your thoughts. You'd like my 180 seconds of thoughts on <laughs> 10,000 pages of answer. All right, here's the short version. Uh, at the local high school, the coach pushes the team to win every game. Mm -hmm. Even if there's six goals ahead, they don't put in the B team because they win, win, win. Is it that they have a soccer trophy shortage and that the school's job is to collect more trophies? That makes no sense. Mm -hmm. Well, at a certain level, money stops being, do I have enough to buy brown rice and black beans and starts being soccer points, mm -hmm. right? And because in our culture if it can be measured it will be measured and it's a number money is this easy number it lets fortune magazine decide who to put on the cover blah 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 but it doesn't matter if there's enough what we see if you listen to hardcore history and its history of rome thing is all of these emperors gave up everything just for a little more power mm -hmm. because their quest for more got in the way of their understanding of enough Right, and that's a human condition. And, and and monks often say more than enough is too much. Yeah, exactly. And that's probably right. But the meta though is that the Silicon Valley people will say, "Well, that doesn't scale." Exactly. Right? And, and so, so the, the problem that I have is this wellness stuff. I know a lot of really smart people, and I have this class that we teach where we we get students to. The problem is it doesn't scale. So so the weird thing is we've got this viral cancer which is measure everything with money right? and every man for himself. And then we've got this very nice, more than enough is too much, let's just you know be humble, it doesn't scale. It reminds me a little bit of this debate I'm having about um, nonviolence um, as a tool. But, but, but the problem is that monks don't want it to scale, right? So, so the question it, by is, by definition, how, it's not about scaling, right. it's about so, being alive. So then how do you fix and cure this cancer that we're talking about, which is this race to the bottom because we're trying to pick the easily measurable results as a social system. Exactly. So, you know, on Twitter at the beginning, it was nice to know that 10 or 100 or 1,000 people were following you. There was no purpose to it. It was mm -hmm. social status. It was you must be doing something well. But once that becomes a meme and people want to game it, then they game it and it goes up and you only have 100, you must be a loser. Mm -hmm. So what we've built into our culture because it gets faster, we need numbers to keep it going faster, mm -hmm. is an avoidance of the more subtle Elizabethan lattice-like structure of appropriate influence in appropriate communities. Mm -hmm. I think your question is how do we jam that mm -hmm. to turn it upside down? Yeah. Well, one way it's going to get jammed is if the abundance thing actually kicks in. Mm -hmm. It turns out that the prize at the end isn't going to be that valuable. Mm -hmm. So people will have a harder time articulating why they gave up their life so they could have a right. private jet when they were 60 because we won't need a private jet because there'll be you know virtual this or virtual that. Is it going to happen in our lifetime? I'm not so sure. Mm -hmm. So for me, the answer is each one of us gets a different choice. And the mm -hmm. choice is if the game is rigged and you're not happy with the game, why are you playing it? Yeah. it but, you know, the 60s had this slightly sure. anti-money, anti-authoritarian thing. 
And if you think about the people who drove that, like the Beatles, I, Timothy Leary was, you know, yeah, question authority, you know, Godfather, question authority, think for yourself. Somehow they were able to create a cultural meme where being dropping out was the right thing to do, right? And it feels like the levers, because I was spent the weekend with a bunch of people arguing about how to fix politics, how to fix science. But I feel like maybe we're talking about the wrong layer that, you know, you've got, you've, you've really got to change something fundamental about people not caring about, caring about something else, right? And, caring about something else is more important than not caring. And, so, and, and you have some attempts, right? You have the Occupy movement. You've got, you know, you've got a But lot those of, were also trying it for scale. Yeah, so, yeah. The, you know, yeah, the, the irony yeah. is in 85, Timothy came to my office. Mm -hmm. I was 25 years old. He wanted in advance to write a piece of software Mine. that would run on the Commodore 64. Yeah. And I, I was just stunned. He had the bluest eyes. <laughs> and I was just stunned to be sitting there with Timothy Leary and having him ask me for $100,000, uh -huh. right? He got hung up on scale. And what mm -hmm. the magic of blogging for me, the reason I've never sold an ad, the reason I make no money, I block every single day, is because now I can spread an idea without having to compromise it. Mm -hmm. And if my goal was to maximize something, maximize any variable, I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. That maximization is another way of saying it doesn't, uh, is, is another version of scale. Mm -hmm. And I think what Tenzin would say is, we're not trying to maximize this. Mm -hmm. What we're trying to do is understand this is a, ma a magical moment in time. We have an enormous amount of influence and leverage, mm -hmm. and we're alive. Mm -hmm. Why should we waste it being unpaid uh, pawns in a social media game? Why should we waste it racing around trying to win mm -hmm. when we already won? Mm -hmm. And it's really hard for humans to get their arms around mm -hmm. that, because more is what our culture has been selling us since we were born. Well, that's hopefully what I'm trying to do right now at the Media Lab, which is we're calling it participant design. And I love Kevin Slavin, who's competing with us with his own live uh, Facebook words. We're winning, Kevin. Is he, he, we, we were in a car together talking about this, and we were stuck in traffic. And, and I think, I can't remember, this is the weird thing about memories. I can't remember if I said it or he said it. Right. But we said, um, you're not stuck in traffic, you are traffic. And the iteration on that is, as a designer, instead of thinking about other people, think about yourself. Right? So for the Media Lab, we created a journal design science for ourselves. We're changing the rules for ourselves. Right. And we invite other people to the party. We're happy for people to want it, but we don't evangelize it. Right. And if we can figure it out and it's good enough for other people or but we're doing it for our own context and then we're taking down the barriers so people can see everything we do, but that the way we want to change the world is being a positive deviant rather than attacking the middle of the bell curve and trying to You're beat it. You're playing an infinite game, not a finite game. Yeah. Carus's book I've written about this. The infinite game is what you do when you're playing catch with a three-year-old, right? <laughs> you don't want to win catch. You can't win catch. The finite game is U.S. Open, right? There's a time limit. Someone gets the most points. They win. The problem with finite games is only one person wins, mm -hmm. and they end. Mm -hmm. But what this culture has created, if we want it to be, is an infinite game. So your positive, the, 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 the breadcrumbs you leave behind, you personally, are worth billions of dollars. If, no, if someone did nothing but read everything you've written on your blog since you started, there's a billion dollars of value there, and you have accumulated almost none of it. You're playing this infinite game of paying it forward. If enough of us do that, we create this environment where we don't have to worry about winning. It's a good ending.
<laughs> Thank you, Seth. Thank you, Joey. What a privilege. It's fun. See you guys.